Here we are again. And by God, I've got a lot of things to talk about. I know because you've been book touring with yes. Any Ordinary Day. And so you've had actual plane time to read. I've and been on a lot of planes and I've been in a lot of hotel rooms and I've been in a lot of like sitting around and having to wait um, to, you know, go on at things. And so Has that I've been awesome. Uh, do you know what's so weird is that you when you the the thought of it's really awesome and when you first get there it's awesome and then you miss the bloody kids yeah but then of course once you're back with the kids you're with them for about 10 minutes and you yeah, go oh, I wish god i, I just went back in the somewhere. hotel <laughs> Monster. um so i've had a lot got a lot of reading done and also coincidentally um when i arrived back to do 7 30 um there was like four interviews in a row that required books right. to be read so i've just been on a reading yeah. um frenzy the book that i mostly oh, there was two books i mostly read um i save one of them for the next episode that we do but um one that I was really glued to was The Arsonist by Chloe Hoover. Oh, I can't wait to read that. It's really good. She's she's a wonderful writer. I was a huge fan of The Tall Man, which yeah. was her um, nonfiction about Cameron uh, Dumaji and um, – Palm Island. Yeah, Palm Island. It was really brilliant. She's – I mean, I think she's the sort of – um, I was going to say Garner of our generation, but that's not really a fair comparison because she doesn't um, have the same degree of first person use. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's it's just that it's the she's marriage. She's a great of observer and researcher. Excellent and, observer. That's what and I'm she thinking. sort of picks non-obvious parts of the story to bring into the light. Like exactly. She's, yeah. She's sort of like a, um, a, a a feature writer just on absolute speed. Like she's just. It's sharper and deeper and totally. Yeah. And she brings it's so it's non-fiction, but she brings um, a real literary sensibility to yeah. the writing. So the premise of this book is basically she's looking at the person who was convicted with starting um, one of the fires in on Black Saturday that killed you know scores of people. Yeah. And you know, obviously, when people were arrested for that sort of stuff, or, or when people are arrested in arson cases, the community hatred is just so intense. And so she looks at this bloke who was charged and convicted and she sort of goes back and pieces together what his life had been like. It's not it, – it, is it a bit like this house of grief, like where she's sort of identifying with the – well, not, not, not really. the really identified with the defendant in this house of grief, but is it, it – It's a little bit like that but not really because you by the end of the book you you really are not clear on what Chloe Hooper's perspective is on the guy. You, you oh, can't okay. tell if she felt sympathetic towards him or if she hated him um, and was angry towards him. In fact, she was probably both like lots yeah. of people. That, I think as a reader that's how you feel. You feel um, like this guy clearly has had some problems and is, you know, has issues uh, but – also, he set a fire that killed a heap of people. And there's some descriptions of his. He was employed for a while at Monash University as a groundsman and his right. colleagues really didn't like working with him. They found him threatening and bullying and um, difficult. He was also, in turn, had been heavily bullied as a child and his mother had right. always been sort of trying to run interference for him. And So is there this, I mean, I never understand with arsonists, is there a kind of a um, – dislocation between the act and the consequence. I mean, did he light that fire In thinking, this case, there appears oh, to be. I'm going to kill some people or is that I'm going to do this amazing, interesting no, thing? No, it's the 
the intent to kill people certainly wasn't there. It, it's almost like an unintended consequence. He claimed that he had been smoking in his car and he had wrapped the ash from the cigarette, thought it was extinguished, put it in a napkin and threw it out the window and that was his. Right. And he actually led the police. He's going to wrap this in something flammable just to sort that out, yeah. He led the police to where he'd thrown that mm. out the window. Some of the really interesting stuff is looking at the arson squad and how they actually do their yeah, work of right. piecing together. I've always together. wondered about that because yeah. they always seem to be so incredibly accurate. And I just think, wow, I would just be shown 20 kilometres of burned bushland and just think, it, right. There's uh, such a science to it. but it, it, And that I found that really interesting. But it's also um, – So it's a bit like a – True crimey sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, but not with. There's no degree of mystery because yeah, you know, you know did the it. guy's yeah. been convicted. Um, it's. I mean, I just. It's a bit needle in a haystacky arson as yeah. well. You know, trying to find. But but the science allows you to determine fairly readily like where the fire started yeah. and so forth. And then they comb through looking for you know evidence of. Often you'll find you know signs of some sort of accelerant that have yeah. helped it kick along or whatever. Yeah cigarette butt, you know, that sort of stuff if it's still there. But the heat on that day was so extreme that stuff just got absolutely, yeah. you know, pulverised. And so the book goes back and forth between just as you feel like, oh, I feel sort of some sympathy for this guy and he seems to be, you know, not all there and all the rest of it, then they'd go to the perspective of people who were caught in that fire and just the horrendous ways that they yeah. died. And, and that so, was kind of a slightly of the fires on that terrible day. This one was one of the more overlooked ones, wasn't it? Like it was like – Yeah, it wasn't the main – It wasn't King Lake. I forget, sorry, the and I don't have the book with me to check. I forget the areas that it covered, but um, it was – it's in one of those sort of um, areas that has become quite depressed because it had the Hazelwood Power yeah. Station and then that's gone. That's what I found really interesting um, in the um, – review or extract that I read of the book, um, I can't remember which it was, but I thought immediately I really want to read that because it kind of looked at the circumstances of the region and the way that certain events would play out in a different way because of what else was going on in that yeah. region. And I find that so interesting and it's exactly the right circumstances for Chloe Hooper to pick yeah. over, yeah. yeah. Look, I, I thought it was really an interesting insight into um, police arson work, the community, um, somebody like a defence lawyer who's assigned to a case that is very, very difficult. Um, it's a really good 360 of the yeah. whole thing um, and just done in her excellent it's observational way. I mean, because arson in particular is one of these crimes where – the perspective on arson is always the same. It's everybody else looking out from outside at this one person going, mm. well, why did you do that, you mm. idiot, or you asshole, or whatever. Like that is the only way we look at arson. We never look at it from the person's view out. We never look at it in context of what else is going on in that area. And yet all of those things are really significant, aren't they? Well, she talks about this guy after he's arrested is diagnosed um, as on the autism spectrum, spectrum and she does a bit of research and apparently some people on the spectrum find fire and the look of fire soothing. Um, so she talks a bit about that. But then she explores a little bit about the psychology of us. And, I mean, I'm yeah. sure we've all heard about people who sign up to be in the yeah. Rural Fire Brigade because they like being around fire um, and they just have a fascination with yeah. fire. It, it is one of those things that for some people, for whatever reason, does capture some particular 
thing. Um, one of the reasons I'm so pleased that you read this is that is because it kind of really reminds me of one of the really exhilarating parts of that book, Dope Sick, that I read recently about um, about um, um, the prescription drug opioid abuse issues in in America, and this is sort of like the story of the Shenandoah Valley where it just oxycontin spread like spread like a fire and um and then heroin followed and the most amazing part of that book was that it wasn't just about the drugs it was about the receptiveness of that area which is full of um coal mines that have closed and a population that's chronically un- underemployed that ended up finding income from selling oxycontin pills like that were being overprescribed in the area by really not very many doctors at all like so just the way um economic circumstance can really feed into oh, yeah. to what happens, you know, um, and to the susceptibility of an area to an outside influence or an outside mm. evil. It's just I found it really interesting. And um, I read uh, since we last spoke um, a book that I know you've read um, by Rick Morton called 100 Years of Dirt, which I'm I just – waiting for you to read that, yeah. I just was absolutely blown away by that book. And I think – look, over – the years you know you you read accounts of poverty right and and but there aren't all that many of them because mm. i mean it's really hard yep. to get out of poverty and so you the voices that you hear are from the people who have kind of made it out yeah. and there's like it's just hard to do and that's what um this book really demonstrates with such sensitivity and um and care. I just think it's a really patient book and it's like it's an unbelievable read. Like it's an um, autobiographical work and um, Rick Morton has had this quite extraordinary life, um, lots of trauma but also lots of love. Mm. Um, Do you know there was – I mean there was many parts of that book that stayed with me. I thought it was an incredible piece of writing. Yeah. And it's interesting because when – It's funny Morton's, too, which, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it it's is. quite hard to do. When Rick Morton's writing it, um, he's not in any – he doesn't attempt to mask how hard he's found the sort of getting out of yeah. the circuit. Oh, that's my cookies ready. Sorry. <laughs> my kids programmed my timer to sound like some sort of Twilight Zone thing. Hang on a second. You, you, you get, finish your you night while I get the cookies out of the oven. Good plan and I'll finish this. Um, he doesn't make any secret of how hard he's found that to get out and, and his own mental health issues and having been suicidal a few times and all of this sort of stuff. And it was one of those books where I read it and I just thought – you're such a talented writer that it's really it's up to you what you do from here sort of thing like I feel like he could have an incredible career as a writer and author and journalist um yeah but also I can understand how that might become just too hard because I feel like it's been really hard to get to where he is now yeah but also he's really a valuable voice where he is too Um, and he talks about actually pretty frankly about the um, difficulties of working at the Australian, and um, and how he gets a lot of criticism, particularly from um, people on the left, about um, you know how can you hang out there working at the Australian? I just think he's a great asset to the Australian. Mm, um, I agree, but, and um, also because of his where he's come from, he brings a different perspective to stories. That's right, and he talks a bit about the run-ins that he's had with other journalists, and one of the most actually personally scarifying parts of the book I reckon is like reading his account of what it was like getting into journalism and what it was like when he was a cadet journalist and um, his cohort in journalism and he said like he always was in the absolute minority um, coming from a non kind of like 
affluent or, you know, reasonably well-off background. Mm. And he talked about the um, phenomenon now where newspapers, rather than taking on paid cadets as they used to do, will offer unpaid um, internships instead, where if you want to have that opportunity, you have to have another means of support, like you don't get paid and so and there's not enough time to get, a, a, you know, a, mm. a, another part-time job or if there is, you just run absolutely ragged. So it's really engineered towards people who have got a sort of financial support to spot them for like or give them somewhere to live you know for three months or six months or whatever and like I just read that and I felt so I mean I guess there's lots of things going on in the media industry now but I just felt really I mean I was lucky enough to have a paid cadetship when I started out in journalism and I'm you know frightened by the extent to which um now they offer unpaid internships. I think it's a, it's bad policy, but um, I hadn't really thought through the consequences for the demographic of journalism. He explains that so well, yeah. also by using the example of his sister who wanted to be a midwife yeah. to get some sort of a you know career going, and how she had to go to university to do that. But in order to be able to afford to do that, she had to continue to live at home, which was about an hour and a half away from where she had to be at uni, yeah. and then the sort of practical, um, you know, component of the course. She was working, you know, a job and then she'd have to do pracs and you'd have to – the pracs would inqu- involve that you were assigned to someone who was pregnant and you'd have to show up when they gave birth. Yeah. Um, and, like, the degree of difficulty for her. And he said basically it required him, his mother – and his sister to all sort of share the load around, like Rick was paying, you know, for her, her car textbooks repairs and, and car, textbooks yeah. and stuff like that. And the mum was providing the um, accommodation. The sister was doing the work and working another part-time job. Like the level of work involved in her getting that qualification, it wasn't just as simple as like, oh, we'll get off your bum and go and get a qualification. Like yeah. the bar is just so much higher. Yeah. The other thing in his book that really stayed with me was his discussion of his brother. Oh, which is just one of the- the most confronting, like just a, a disaster befalls its brother um, when they're children and their whole lives change. It's really full on. Um, and his brother has been in and out of prison and um, takes drugs and has dealt drugs and blah, blah, blah. Um, but Rick explains so it's in about one paragraph. I wish I had it here to read. So clearly the difference, because like an outsider, you might look at the family and go, oh, well, Rick was able to, you know, buy hard work and blah, 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 and do whatever. And um, whereas, you know, the brother hasn't been able to. And Rick said, actually, maybe for both of us, this is just what survival looked yeah. like. And the choices, it, Rick said he didn't even feel at times like he was making choices. It's just like how things unfolded. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for, so for Rick said, perhaps the thing I most needed was to get out perhaps the thing my bro- brother most needed was to numb the pain like yeah. you do whatever it takes for you to survive yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway it's an excellent it's an awesome book very um, powerful book and before we finish with um uh this particular area um our friend Miranda um shot me towards a an essay in I think the current issue of Mianjin um yeah. by a writer called Jane Gilmore called what I learned about poverty and it's a really good companion read to Rick's book actually because her account is, you know, she was, she's a writer, she's doing fine, then suddenly marriage breaks up, loses her job and she's on the bones of her ass and she talks about wh- how it is to suddenly be poor and the things that you take for granted or that your friends take for granted that you can do, you can't do anymore and because you've your circumstances have changed quickly, 
you feel this weird embarrassment about being um, un- and not having enough to eat or mm. not being able to come and have a coffee because you can't afford it or <clears throat> not be able to make a job interview because your um, travel card is doesn't have enough money on it and so on. Like it's just – it's a – it's a beautiful essay, um, mm, okay. but it's it. She intersperses her own story with these little paragraphs of just data about poverty in Australia, and she winds up making a really interesting and valid point, which she says, like, whatever happened to me at every point, I was I was poor, but it wasn't poverty because I had. Um, you know, great education, I had skills, I had friends, I had an expectation of life and a knowledge of how to, you know, call in on contacts, how to scare up work, which she eventually did. Um, So she had a sense that it wasn't the rest of her life. Well, I think in the essay there are moments of true despair, but she's making the point that real poverty is where you don't even have a mental mud map map of how you might get out of it or any – examples around you of how to how to get out of it you don't have any um uh understanding of the infrastructure like rick morton in his book talks about going along to apply for a scholarship and he's the only person there who doesn't have the right shoes or a, or a suit or a, like he looks different from all the other people and he's just like i don't have i can't get that stuff mm. um very common experience um i reckon among people who've not ha- uh, posh upbringing is not knowing how to use chopsticks. He mentions being, that, yeah. Yeah. It, um, yeah. Uh, uh, I, it, it's also like, you know, poverty in childhood I think has lifelong profound um, impacts on people and the way they view things because I think of the sense that at any time everything could disappear and you could be back in poverty and the yep. fear of that happening. I interviewed Michael Caine for 7.30. <gasps> um, he's had the most so fascinating life, grew up in extreme poverty mm. and then um, was um, – Clang, by the way. Conscripted into national service, served yep. in the Korean War. And then, you know, it was, took until his 30s until he had sort of real film success and then he got Alfie and he was a big international star and then he's been, you know, incredibly rich. But – Michael Caine's one of those people. He's worked a lot and he's done some amazing films and he's, he's done, done some, some shockers. Absolute shockers. And he says, I don't care because people say to me, you know, geez, that film was a shocker. And he'll be like, yeah, but have you seen the house I bought for my mum? It's fantastic. <laughs> so he, you know, has, he doesn't care because he gets paid and that allows him to have a life and to, has helped him with his uh, mother and his yeah. brother and yeah. all of that sort of stuff. Um, his um, book, which was called, it's called something like just blow the bloody doors off or blow the bloody doors off, something like that. It was so delightful and he just seems and was um, just a delightful person who is completely besotted by his own family and just yeah. likes doing everything, you know, with his family. He said now but he, he says he's not brilliant with money and he spends now all of his money on taking his um, wife, two daughters and all of his grandkids mm. on gigantic family holidays <laughs> around, all around the world. Um, and... Just again, I think because of his upbringing, his lack of pretension, like you said, he always walks onto film sets and says, hello, my name's Michael, because people oh. are like, oh, should I call him Sir Michael or, you know, Mr. Kane? <laughs> or whatever. Sir, um, he goes, hi, my name's Michael. He said, I treat everyone the same. I show up on time. I learn my lines. Everyone calls him Sugar. <laughs> sugar Kane. 
Sorry. God. But, um, hey, um, I saw he half of your interview with Rob Brydon the other day. Like, yes. What, you didn't tell me you were interviewing Rob Brydon. It's so weird, isn't No it? one tells me anything and you never tell me anything interesting about like, I could have been there. I could have pretended to be your camera assistant. <laughs> he was in London, so it was just not in person. But how weird that um, I did Rob Brydon yeah. and then Michael Caine immediately I know. Afterwards. It was total coincidence. So Brydon well, I just assumed that they were weirdly connected in some way. No, right. just total coincidence. So Brydon, who was also absolutely she delightful. She was only a 16-year-old girl. <laughs> Bryden said to me, we were talking about the Michael Caine impersonation that they do in yeah. the trip, and he says now people just come up to him all the time and do their Michael Caine impersonations, <laughs> including Mick Jagger, no way. who came up to do one. And I said, how was it? And he said, it was the worst I've ever seen. It was absolutely horrendous. <laughs> so then when I interviewed Michael Caine, I said, um, hey, I just spoke to that jammy bastard Rob Bryden. He's made plenty of mileage, hasn't he, out of impersonating you? And he laughed and um, I said, Rob says people come up to him all the time now and they do their Michael Caine impersonation. Even Mick Jagger did it. And Caine, like laughed with genuine delight. He goes, really, Mick had a go at doing me? And I said, yeah. And he said, how was it? And I said, really, really bad apparently. And Michael Caine said, oh, yeah, his lips would be too big to do it properly. <laughs> Oh, you and your hijinks with Me your celebrity and my, mates. My well, just a basket of clangs there. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so that was great. And then what um, else have you been reading? Uh, look, I've been uh, completely blown away. Like I've had a really like fascinating run of books recently. I've had like no duds. I picked up um, Beruz Buchani's book, um, No Friend But the Mountain. So he is a Kurdish detainee on um, Manus and has been for um, years. You would have seen his work because he, he files for The Guardian and he's written this book. And it's a, an account of his own boat journey from Indonesia, interception and um, deportation to Manus for processing. He's been there ever since. Um, he writes great stuff for The Guardian. Um, and uh, I've always found his writing in The Guardian incredibly compelling and because – one of the problems with those detention centres is you never get your own eyeballs in there. Like it's always mm. imaginary what's happening there or you have to kind of construct it from what you hear through the controlled channels of information. But this guy's there and he's got an incredible, incredible eye for observation and for humanity. And this book that he's written, it's just – it's unbelievable. It is um, a really significant literary achievement, I think. Um, he filed it by text message. Mm over years so it has to be um translated so he's got a translator in australia um he texts it to a guy who um who compiles it message by message by message into a block of text to send to the translator who then translates it so the um the book has an intro by the translator who sort of talks about um you know, the the structure of the language and how difficult it is to translate, whatever. I sort of raced through the intro a bit. It got a bit dense for me. But um the writing of the of the work itself is just it's incredibly compelling. His um account of his own uh ordeal and what he notices about the people who are around him are incredibly beautiful and poetic like it's it's a beautifully written book and he notices the tiniest human details about the people that he's traveling with um because they're all thrown together in this terrible sinking boat you know it's frightening the boat voyage for instance and then what happens later is of course um in worse it's just 
what I'm grateful for reading this book is these human details because you just never get them otherwise. Mm. And he is <clears throat> an incredibly thoughtful, like he's a generous, thoughtful person. You can tell from the way that he watches people and the things that he notices and the reflections that he has. Anyway, it's just, it's an extraordinary piece of work. And I sort of feel like it would be great if everybody had to read it before they made any decisions about anything. I saw you tweet that yeah. and I thought, yeah, that's so true. We had a story on 7.30 the other day about a family who had been settled in Australia as legitimate refugees. They'd been separated from their father when they were leaving because they, they had to get in a minibus at a certain point and there wasn't enough seats and so he sent the family ahead and then he was getting in the next vehicle. They made it um, to Australia before that cutoff. Yeah. And he didn't, and so he's now on Manus and Nauru and one of the people who's been told you will never, ever be resettled in yeah. Australia. And so there's this family, they're all legitimate refugees yeah. who've been settled here that are now fatherless. Yeah. Is that really the best that we can do in this country? Look, I think that, like, you know, without getting too political I know it's, about it, it's, it's yeah. just, it's, I mean, this is probably the policy area in the last 20 years that has been the most encrusted with scar tissue. Like, I mean, um, it was in sort of 2001 where this really became a divisive rather than a, you know, because, I mean, um, uh, immigration has always been a bipartisan area of government policy, um, political policy in this country. And then in 2001, um, uh around the time of the Tampa, you know, it just became this absolute ticking time bomb. It became a central campaign platform for the Howard government and that kind of amped up the opposition from the Labor Party at the time, but they were very ginger about it because they didn't want to run on the campaign of, you know, let refugees into this country, right? Like, so it was like a real wedge device and the Labor Party's gone through a series of really terrible contortions on this over well, the they, subsequent years. They undid and, offshore processing and that restarted all of the boat yeah. trade. Then, so then they went back to offshore yeah. processing with a whole lot of convoluted yeah. twists and turns. I just, I mean, I know it's an incredibly complex area and it's very difficult, but when you see like that human story that we had on the show, like well, I say. Well, it's because we're now in a position where um, we're painted into this corner where there's such an atavistic fear of, you know, starting the boats again. And I totally understand that because when those boats were arriving with um, regularity and these dreadful things were happening to those on board, like I, I saw Labor MPs who changed their view on this because of the, the mm. terrible things they'd seen and heard about. Um, and Robert Mann wrote a really interesting essay about this actually uh, that I read a week or two ago and Robert Mann has had sort of both sides of the fence really because he was very much in the Howard era um, welcome mm. refugees and then he kind of changed and um, I don't want to verbal him, I can't remember the exact nuanced position that he had but he he was really struck by um, the suffering of those or the boats and the people smuggling trade. So he kind of changed sides. And now he's adopted this sort of position where, and he, he writes about his, what he suggests is, look, um, nobody wants to open the trade for people smugglers again. It's brutal. It's inhumane. And it, like it's expensive and um, both in terms of cost to asylum seekers and mm. in human life. So he 
continues he backs the system of boat turnbacks and um but he um he says the people that are um currently in detention need to be released right like he he his theory is that you can maintain this tough system of turnbacks and but that um relieving the suffering of the people who are currently in detention will not affect that um, outcome. And it's just the way that he writes about it, though. It's almost like he writes about the pain and awkwardness of relinquishing the moral high ground. And right. I think it's a really perceptive – Oh, that um, sounds good. Where, yeah. was, where was that essay? I just, I I'll find it and I'll, I'll get tell Brenda, Kathy so that we can – yeah. Can I have a biscuit to cheer me up? Please? Yeah, you can actually. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to wrap up now. All right. See ya. Oh, God. Once again. It's us again. again. <laughs> we forgot to play. <laughs> so awful. We forgot to plug our new bookstore on our website. Yep. Go to chat10looks3.com. You can click on bookstore. All the books we've talked about you'll be able to find there and you can then um, click through and purchase them if you wish. And They're all collected there so it's very easy. Yeah. Um, also, while you're there, you could pick up one of those outrageous moral high grounds <laughs> coffee cups that uh, Gwen Well, maybe Gwen will have stopped good. flogging them by oh, then. God, I don't all know. Right. Anyway, they might whatever. be all so gone. Just, just have a look at the website. You'll Go work it out. Stay for the books. You'll work it out.